Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I had a really interesting conversation with Michael Ross. He is the Chief Revenue Officer and co-founder of Doxa Talent. Doxa is a recent entrant to the outsourcing market. They started out of the COVID pandemic, which of course we cover on this podcast. But the founders, the partners, they actually have a wealth of business and entrepreneurial experience themselves, all highly successful business people, and they have really made their mark in entrepreneurship and business, as we also talk about on this podcast. Out of that experience came Doxa Talent, which is an outsourcing firm uh, basically built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. We hear the whole story from Michael, Uh, And we talk about all things outsourcing and business generally. So it was a fantastic conversation and I certainly learned a lot. As always, if you're on any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Michael, welcome to the show. I want to hear all about Doxa. First, tell me about the the origin of the name Doxa, Michael. Thank you, Derek, and thanks for having me today. It's an honor to be here. So, we were really uh, born out of the pandemic, if you will. So my background, I spent the last 15 years prior to co-founding Doxa, helping companies go into new international markets and really identifying who are the partners, how to navigate the regulatory environment and the distribution channels for import and export. And over the years, I've referred dozens, if not more, clients to different agencies, BPOs in different regions around the world, many in the Philippines. And over the years, I would see that there were times when 
uh, a small or medium-sized company just didn't have a great myriad of solutions like somebody who may need 30,000 or 3,000 people doing the exact same highly, highly repeatable task. And um, at the same time, uh, I'm a member of Entrepreneurs Organization and have been working with my now co-founders in different leadership roles, volunteering within Entrepreneurs Organization. And um, one of my co-founders, David Nielsen, he had a team in the Philippines and was uh, working with them. Things were going well, but just was not getting the... Uh, support that that he was expecting. And so he started to feel some of these challenges. And I had another client that was doing doing work with a BPO in Latin America, and they were wanting to break their contract. And the company said, you have another year left on your contract, so sorry. When they finally negotiated out of that, they wanted to take a couple of the employees in-house who had been with them for a number of years. And oh, by the way, they found out that over three years, their people never got a raise, even though they were paying more each year. And when they when they finally wanted to bring them in house, and they were really held, uh, they were handcuffed, and you know, being told that sorry, we are the employer of record, and you're not able to take these employees. So. I've seen people really experiencing these pain points. And um, one of our co-founders, Edward Lim in Manila, um, we've been working together for the last 15 years in entrepreneurs organization. Um, Three of us were talking one day about how there just is not enough good solutions for these small and entrepreneurial ventures. And as the pandemic took place and we saw that there was a real challenge in the United States of of tapping into talent, finding people who would be willing to work. And at the same time, people were going remote and they were using Zoom and other tools to connect virtually. Um, Feel like it opened the eyes to so many companies that, hey, my bookkeeper does not need to be sitting in my office or my executive assistant doesn't need to be sitting in my office. So we put our heads together and um, along with two other co-founders who have experience on staffing and BPOs and um, really high service delivery for international companies got together to form Doxa and uh, Doxa Talent was born out of that. And the name Doxa comes from the Greek term to assign new meaning to something. And we really want to um, help the industry um, serve small and medium-sized companies to to tap into global talent. Fantastic. And there's so much I want to unpack there. But let's start with you, Michael. Your your original business, now all of you, the all of the, fa- the founders of Doxa, you're very successful entrepreneurs in your own right, which I think brings a lot of credibility to the offshore staffing space because you know how to run a businesses business you've been in the trenches yourselves um, and there's a lot of sort of operational structural kind of value that you can bring to these things um, but your own journey is is interestingly very connected in a circuitous way to the offshore market you were really connecting local businesses to the international market is that right and and um what sort of time frame was that what you know is that sort of 10 or 30 years ago and how 
how have things changed? What what was your, I suppose, contribution in terms of internationalizing otherwise domestic businesses? Yeah, my focus there really started in 2008 and 2009. And I was doing a lot of philanthropic work in Panama. Um, and I noticed that here was a very small country that had all of these multinationals present with their kind of back office operation and their regional headquarters were there. And there was at the time the second largest free trade zone in the world. And I could see how all of these multinationals had teams and could leverage um, the the policies and this kind of gateway for trade for the Americas, but the small and medium-sized companies, call it the $2 million to $50 million companies, didn't have an international in-house team. They didn't have the, the wherewithal to be able to tap in and kind of level the playing field, if you will. And that's where I saw an opportunity to venture into helping companies go into Latin America specifically and leveraging Panama as a port of entry for trade there for the Americas. And and from there, opportunities would, would come forth to be able to support taking people into Southeast Asia and other regions around the world. Um, and I think a big part of what I see with DOXA is similarly allowing the small and medium-sized companies to tap into these resources that the big multinationals have been leveraging for many, many years. There are so many things like that, that that the smaller SME sector is really locked out of. It's locked out of a lot of sophistication. It's locked out of a lot of efficiencies. And why is it, do you think, you know, often I think the um, smaller businesses often turn their nose up to a lot of these tools, like in terms of internationalization, in terms of um, sourcing people globally, uh, it's kind of frowned upon and, and local businesses are proud to think local, whereas the the bigger conglomerates and global businesses obviously lever, leverage a lot of the benefits of of international trade and and supply. Uh, is is that a sort of cultural thing? Um, do you think that's going to change as you know services like your own actually start to unlock these things to the SME market? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things happening. One when this is leveraged successfully when companies are able to find highly skilled talent anywhere in the world. Um, But in, in cases of going offshore where the cost of living is a fraction and they can have a cost arbitrage there and be able to um, redeploy those savings into their home country and into their home team, I think it can create other opportunities around that profitable growth. And what I've seen over the years are the companies that really thrive leveraging global teams are the ones who allow the global team to feel like they're an extension of their domestic team and really bring those cultures together. And it will unlock the ability to leverage the domestic team to do higher, more valuable work and also create opportunities for them to manage teams overseas, create some diversity among your workforce, open people's eyes to this global workspace. And and we see that as a result, there's more job creation domestically 
and there's more job creation abroad. And it really can work well when it's approached in this kind of holistic um, way and not this concept that that is out there of we're taking jobs from our domestic country, whether it's the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia or another another country and moving them overseas. Um, I, I think that that's the model of the past. And now I see that you're really able to grow both sides of, of the equation now. It's, it's additive, isn't it? You, you're, you're building stronger, more efficient uh, companies, and, and that benefits uh, everyone. Uh, and it yeah. benefits the onshore companies, and they're making more profits, paying more taxes, benefiting the local community. And of course, you know, and, and it's interesting, like you seem to have always grown up with a p- perspective of an internationalized market. And it, it's to me, I also grew up thinking internationally. And it's funny how many people think um, sort of encapsulated within a domestic market only. And these, I don't want to get political, but borders are really sort of human contrived concepts. And really, we exist within one global market. And more and more now, you know, we all buy and trade um, and travel and uh, um, exchange internationally, you know, everything from our food to our culture to our travel and and buying cars and clothes. Um, And I just see it as a natural extension where we're becoming one singular global economy, which I think is, is more beneficial for everyone partaking. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I can point back my passion and appreciation for culture and travel really stems to my parents. My father's a retired American Airlines pilot for 33 years. Yeah, and the rule in our house was that I had to leave the country twice a year and Mexico and Canada didn't count. And it's not because they're not wonderful places. I love them both, but it was too close. So geographically, I was really pushed outside of my comfort zone to take advantage of these travel benefits and um, you know, land in places where I was on my own and had to figure out how to navigate the, the landscape and also the opportunity to build relationships. And that has really carried me through and shifted my worldview from a very early age. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that because um, I think there's so much, so much out there and it's so easy to have the blinders on and just think within the confines of our municipality or our state or our country. And um, that's why I love this business, because for, for us, it's all about borderless talent and just mm. opening eyes to to those opportunities for people. Because mm. it also opens up your market potential, doesn't it? You know, instead of trading within a town of uh, 100,000 people, you have potentially 8 billion clients, 8 billion customers as well. So it just sort of generally opens the net a lot, a lot wider. So Doxa was born out of COVID. Um, there have been huge changes to the way that we work, the concept of work within that time. Uh, and we were all forced to reassess how we work and what work means. Um, and, you know, out of the ashes, it, it caused a lot of pain, but it, there's also a lot of opportunity and, and regrowth out of those ashes. How have you seen, you know, you're on the ground in LA. Uh, you're also very connected to the business community. 
um, how have you seen perspectives change of, I suppose, initially the acceptance of remote work, but then also an extension of that um, offshore work, uh, sourcing people globally instead of locally? I've seen a, a real strong shift in terms of interest level from um, companies that in the past were 100% dependent upon the team being in the office and 100% dependent on local talent. And I think that there's uh, a couple of reasons why people are more open to offshore and more open to remote. And I, and I think it's because we've gone through this collective experience where we were all in the same boat and we had kids running in in the backgrounds of CEOs and dogs barking and people um, working in a around-the-clock kind of manner, but in a very flexible manner, and seeing, for the most part, a lot of companies were able to continue to move forward and um, not take as many steps back as, as perhaps was anticipated. So I think from a... Um, you know, a number of companies that I'm familiar with have walked away from their leases or they've finished out their leases without renewing them. And they've decided to really go fully remote with their team and they will redeploy some of those resources that they're not paying for the office space to create these opportunities to bring the teams together and have that FaceTime and that connection, whether it's a retreat or, you know, monthly or quarterly get together. Um, also have seen people uh, in, who, who are, are faced with trying to hire new talent and bring them into the office and people are resisting that. You know, I think there's going to be a, a sector of the population that's going to want to be commuting and driving and sitting in an office and connecting with people. And then there's um, the other part of the, the demographic that's going to want that flexibility. And in some stories that I've heard, it's become almost expected. Um, they're anticipating that, of course, they should have a, a flexible work schedule or a hybrid um, type of model. And I think for a lot of companies, the most expensive solution, whether you're fully remote or fully in the office, is going to be the hybrid because you're mm -hmm. going to be paying for the space that's going to not be leveraged in the way that it was before. So that's going to be an expensive solution for companies to to adopt. And also it brings up this challenge of how do we manage our corporate culture between the people who are in the office and the people who are removed and working remotely. And I think naturally there's a risk that there could be a dual culture or people who aren't uh, in, in the conference room, but they're on the screen not having that same opportunity that the people have for the water cooler discussion and the impromptu meetings and brainstorming. So I feel like it, there's, there's a lot that we still don't know in terms of how this is going to imprint upon the, the mm. you know, corporate cultures in the future. Yeah, I look. I'm I'm obviously a huge proponent of global employment and spanning the globe with with your teams. And but for me, the jury's still out in terms of you know remote versus office versus distributed versus uh, hybrid approach. And and I, I think there are clear benefits to to each of them, um, which which sort of muddies the water. But certainly the well, the only option 
historically has been to work in an office. And I think that that's been eroded now. And there's just so many more options out there. And, you know, as, as you have said, like there is the incredible opportunity of salary arbitrage. And that is very valuable at a time when the economies are maybe going into recession, things are hard, there are soaring costs. Um, but also it's, it's kind of access to um, abundant talent, isn't it? It's about finding the talent you need and not just being limited to your local uh, talent pool. Um, or as some people put it, their talent puddle if they're living in a, in a small town. Um, so it's, it, it's sort of, it, it's amazing that um, more people really don't see it as a natural progression. How have you seen, I suppose, since COVID and certainly, you know, from the doxa journey that you've been on, have you seen any evolution in people's um, awareness of global employment, acceptance of global employment, and then sort of embracing global employment? How do you how do you see that? Because actually, you know, it can be it can be quite a politically charged topic, can't it? And and it can be quite controversial even. So, how have you seen people's uh, awareness and acceptance? There's definitely been some sensitivity that I've seen in clients who wanted to test this and have have gone down the path of testing who are very reluctant because their client base is uh, perhaps middle America or sections that or demographics that they're calling on that aren't going to appreciate um, this kind of new way of working and may be seeing this through the old lens that we talked about where it's taking away from a local job if they're talking to somebody on the other side of the world. And um, I'm really impressed because a number of these national organizations who express these concerns um, tested it. And we put teams together for them that are doing sales calls. They're doing customer service interaction. They're doing very localized work in very local markets. And it's gone really, really well. And they've been able to scale up their operation and they didn't face, the client didn't face a backlash that they feared. They didn't, um, they haven't had any issues with that. And I think a large part that speaks to the quality of talent that's specifically available in the Philippines with, with, with English speaking language and uh, you know, quite frankly, some very neutral accents that that people could be sitting in any major U.S. city um, and calling on their behalf. So uh, there's there's been a common theme of concern and some initial hesitation, but every single conversation I've had with those those prospects who become clients, they're thrilled with the results and they're fully diving in on it and doubling down on this approach. Yeah. I think it's no, go on. I, I had a client as well that was working in uh, veterans uh, healthcare claims mm-hmm. and dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, sort of veterans that are set in their ways, dealing with very personal mental health issues, medical claims, complex issues, uh, and the Filipino teams vastly outperformed their local teams. Um, and, you know, they expanded that group up to about 600 staff. And uh, generally, I think if you get a side-by-side test, then, uh, you know, anecdotally, I've heard that 
the, the offshore teams will generally always outperform. Um, you know, and I think often this culture or accent or how people talk is, is just it's sort of a convenient sort of scapegoat that isn't actually relevant. I think if you have competent and capable handling of people's requirements, then the cultural accent is irrelevant because, I mean, America now is a, is a whole, you know, hot pot of different cultures and accents and, and itself, isn't it? You know, there is no one American accent. Um, so it's just about getting the, getting the work done capably and competently. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think you're spot on with that. Yeah. And, uh, so Doxa then let's focus on Doxa. What do you focus on? I mean, the, the, the founders, you all come into this with vast entrepreneurial business success and experience. Um, where are you sort of putting your stake in the ground and what are you focusing on as, as a sort of ideal clientele, ideal product and service? Yeah, we are really focused on small to medium-sized companies uh, and companies that we do have a couple publicly traded companies that we support who have uh, have scaled and are continuing to scale. So it's not exclusively the SME space, but we wanted to make it very easy. We wanted to be uh, you know, built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And uh, the majority, I would say, um, you know, probably probably 50, 55% of our clients are first timers with embracing and testing offshore teams. So our focus, you know, we have a targeted hiring approach where we will work with the client to understand their, their parameters. We go to the market to, to find those individuals, move them through multiple step process to, to screen um, before endorsing them to our clients. We engage the clients in the recruiting process and have them and their teams interview them. Again, we want them to see this offshore team as an extension of their onshore team. So everything we can do to bridge that for them is what we're all about. And really a full service um, solution for them. want to make it very easy we want everything, uh, you know, we don't want people locked into long-term contracts. We don't want to make it difficult that if they build up a great team and they want to bring them in-house, you know, we have an easy pathway for them to do that. You know, at the end of the day, we want to help companies profitably grow and we want to create meaningful work for people in the Philippines who otherwise may not have access to it. And that's really what we're all about. And how do you blend the staffing solution component of your business versus business oversight process development and management do you get involved because you know yourself businesses are complicated businesses are tough do you yourself not yourself but your team your executive team get involved in building people's businesses and processes or is it more you provide the staff and the and the i suppose the structure but it's up to them yeah, it's it's really I would say it's a blend, Derek. We have um, the you know we're the employer of record. We have the infrastructure to bring in and find the best talent for them, but we want the client to own the process. We want the client to own the 
training. We're here to support with our service delivery team where we are tracking and working with them on what are the KPIs we should be tracking on the back end to be sure that we're getting results on the front end. Some clients want help with the process and we've leveraged RPA, Robotic Process Automation, for a number of clients to really fine tune that uh, particular process that their team is working on and really quantifying how much time and in turn how much money is spent on each step of that process. And that's helped the team make really smart, intelligent decisions around where in the process should the focus be to make it more efficient. And um, we, from a consultative standpoint, have certainly been been there to, to help companies identify how to really leverage global talent and how to leverage technology and tools. So it really is a, a customized kind of experience that we're, we're creating for them. It's not a here's an executive assistant or here's a CPA, you know, bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Um, we really want it to be a full full service, um, you know, solution based on what their needs are. And with your experience now of uh, business, but then also offshoring, how much of getting offshoring right is actually just the essence of running a business, delegating, building a team and processes versus the nuances of offshoring and, and globalized employment? You know, I, I, from my experience, I've actually realized that the vast majority of kind of learnings and uh, I suppose, you know, things you need to know is actually just really how to run a business. Um, but then there are nuances to, to offshoring. How, how have you found that kind of learning process and then transferring that to your, your business clients? I would agree that I think it's really about the nuts and bolts of running a business, which boils down to people. And and building the team, building the right team, sharing the vision, getting people to buy into the why and, and, and really understanding the how, um, I think is really important. And as it relates to offshoring, it's no different because the, the team that's, that's sitting, um, you know, in another time zone is equally capable and also equally needs to understand the why in their work. They need to have the, the tools to be successful with that and the resources to be successful with that. And in the same way, we need to set our business up for success. We, we do the same to set the, the offshore team up for success. So I, I think people have a perception that it's harder than it, than it needs to be. Uh, and then I also think there's a lot of people who have tested it with freelancing and the Fivers and Upworks and have had very mixed results or horrible results. And they equate that to finding somebody who's, you know, a, a scrum master or a software engineer. And, and that's not a fair, you know, jump there. So uh, I think having the right infrastructure around to set somebody up for success is is also really important. Yeah, that's a good point. And this is maybe a layup of a question, but um, you know, compared to the Upworks and Fivers, where, where do you see the difference in offshoring uh, when it comes to price? You know, there's a lot of 
people that are willing to work for two or three bucks an hour versus actual value and quality work being being done. Yeah, I think that as we move up the organizational chart into more highly skilled roles, which is really where we're focusing, where we're we're focused on those individuals. Like we find that by being at the top of the market, you still should have a, a, a you know fifty to seventy five percent cost arbitrage all day long. But I believe that by going towards the top of the market, you can attract. Um, talent that is looking for a destination employer. They're looking for someone they can grow with. They're working to support clients they can grow with and an agency they can grow with and not necessarily jump to another company a year later for a dollar an hour more. Um, So I think by having a really robust compensation package, robust benefits, um, really taking care of your team, um, you can attract and you can maintain really good talent. So um, whether you need a bookkeeper or a CPA or a controller, um, you know, that that talent is available there. And I think that initially people have this perception of, okay, I need, um, or, or their only experience through a Fiverr and Upwork has been on a project basis and a very finite deliverable. And they don't necessarily realize that they could have their sales force in another country or their marketing team or HR recruiters for them. So I think that's kind of the shift that is starting to happen now as we've been in this remote space for the last couple of years. Yeah, I hope there is a move towards you know value uh, instead of a, a sort of a price war um, because yeah. there's always going to be people who are willing to work for cheaper and cheaper and sort of rougher conditions, unfortunately. Um, but people need results, not just bums on seats, don't they? And it's, uh, um, I really hope that the, that the market moves towards an appreciation of quality and um, capability as opposed to just the lowest going price in the market. Um, but yeah, let's see, let's see. I think often these sort of open marketplaces like the Upwork and Fiverr, they, they kind of naturally levitate towards the, the lowest going price on the marketplace, which um, is, is a bit of a downward spiral, isn't it? Yeah, one of the things that's been interesting to me being really deep in this business for the last few years now is um, seeing people who have transitioned from that freelance market to a fully employed, fully dedicated um, set setup. And, and for us, our people are not fractional. They're 100% dedicated to the client. And we've seen a number of situations where individuals made that shift because they weren't paying their taxes. They weren't paying into social services. And then they had a life or family event that required them to get um, some some insurance or get some support from government services and they weren't eligible because they were operating in what I kind of call the gray economy. And that was a detriment to their family and to them. And so I think there is a place for the Upworks and the Fivers and I've used them for things here and there, but it also, I think people don't realize that that, that is comes at a price as well on the other side of the equation. So really see that this approach that that uh, of, of 
finding and paying people a fair wage is really more of a conscious capitalist move and uh, an opportunity to to uplift the community there and have a positive impact on the families of your workforce, I think is really important. And sometimes people lose sight of that in this, you know, looking for, for the cheapest solution. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and it is a bit of a rising issue in the Philippines. I, I live in the Philippines, been here about nine years, and um, there is a growing gray market. And I think it started obviously with Upwork and Freelancer and um, Fiverr. And it's a double-edged sword because it's actually giving economic opportunity out to people in the provinces and without any, um, you know, typically many other opportunities. Um, but it's largely illegitimate. Like none of these people are properly employed, have any benefits. Um, pay taxes, you know, partly it's the fault of the system because the system is very complicated to comply. It's um, very low level, um, well, uneasy to do business uh, in the Philippines. So um, it is partly the fault of the system. But uh, certainly, I think employers in the West or clients in the West aren't really conscious enough to really care about the circumstances of this of the people. Um, and, you know, I think that they need to look more long term. And as you say, it sort of um, it benefits everyone in the short term, I think, because they're not paying taxes, they're not contributing to benefits. Um, but then, of course, in the medium and long term, it's, it's really doing them a disservice, which, you know, uh, the government is very aware of this. I've spoken to a lot of government officials and things like that. But uh, um, I don't know if it's apathy or inactivity or, or there's a sort of at least they're happy that they have some sort of income, um, but it's certainly not not going away. Gosh, that's a deep one though, isn't it? And one, yeah. one thing I wanted to ask, and I'm not sure if you have any awareness of this, but you know, in the whole Silicon Valley scene that you're not too far away from, the mm. uh, global employer of record, PEO industry, maybe led by the likes of Deal and Remote um, and Omnipresent and maybe now a dozen others, some of them, I think Deal has raised about $750 million. They're only about two or three years old, um, and they sort of promise global employment. Um, do you, is, how would you see the Doxer is similar? How would you see that it's different? Um, because these companies are just getting ridiculous multi-billion dollar valuations after very little traction and um, not any sort of significant difference to doctor, I would say, you know, offering kind of globalized employment solutions. Do you have any, have you sort of seen that market? How many opinions on them? We have, we, we, in fact, we, we are offering that service for, for a number of companies uh, right now who have teams already established that they want to bring these teams into, from the gray economy, let's say into uh, a proper setup where they're able to get the benefits and they're able to get the insurance and be able to to pay the taxes and really protect the company as well because they they kind of a number of them started in the way that a lot of companies do just a handful of people on upwork and now all of a sudden they have they go from two to five to ten different freelancers. And they realize, wow, this is a this is working for me. I got really lucky. I've had a lot of 
bad experiences, but I found some great people and I want to bring them in house, but I don't want to go through and set up an entity and deal with all of the regulatory requirements and investment that's required to, to put boots on the ground uh, in, in the Philippines. And so we've been able to bridge that, that gap by offering a PEO solution for them. And I don't understand why uh, the markets are putting such a big premium on this concept that has been around for a long, long time. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's been around the U.S. forever. Um, there are a number of really big PEO players. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of confounded by that, uh, the valuations that we're seeing there with those companies that you men- mentioned. But I think it is a way to um, offer kind of an a la carte approach. So if somebody already has the team, somebody doesn't need uh, a team leader, doesn't need a service delivery team, really watching people on the back end for you and helping helping you. Uh, and you really just need somebody to play the role of employer of record and handle the taxes and the payroll and the benefits. Um, then I think it serves a great purpose. Uh, if you need the full recruiting and and all the management side of things then i think having having those service offerings too are great so i see them as really complementary going hand in hand where a client may need everything or they may just need one aspect of it and that's where i think the peo solution comes in Mm-hmm. Yeah, the valuations are crazy. I see it a little bit like uh, WeWork, how, you know, co-working yeah. spaces existed for many decades before and there are big players in the market. You know, there's like Regis that have been around for decades and uh, WeWork comes along with a new sort of narrative and gets incredible valuations, but it's the same, it's the same underlying product. Huh? It's crazy. Yeah. Let's, it's, let's it's, watch this uh, space when the funding yeah. dries up. It'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be really yeah. interesting. Yes. And have you seen, I suppose, um, you know, have, have you seen uh, people changing their perspective on offshoring? A lot of people can be dismissive of offshoring. You know, now I want people in my office and kind of, you know, I see onshore staff as a luxury good. Um, but when times get a little bit tougher as we head into a recession and, you know, uh, funding is drying up. Are you seeing people change their tone a little bit and reassessing these options as real options now? Have you seen any sort of movement there? I feel like, yes, I feel like there's more, uh, almost a sense of hedging on the fact that there's, there's limited talent available domestically. And, uh, and I'm seeing that in the US, Australia, the UK, and I think the hedging against the global markets and the, the recessions that are looming or, or fearing that we're moving into a really difficult economic period and wanting to be sure that you have the team that has the right talent, but you also have the cost arbitrage and you have the savings on the payroll front and you're not saddled with um, you know, wages that have really been escalating and, and with inflation uh, have, have, you know, outpaced the growth of the companies. And that's a, that's a big thing that 
that people are talking about just how the the costs are far far outpacing it's not sustainable with what the revenues are are doing and so i think i think there is a shift there scary times yeah maybe yeah. there's going to be more of an emphasis going forward on uh cash flow and and profits as opposed to just sort of growth and revenue growth and user growth but uh, it might kind of settle things down and so if you are talking to people you know you're on the ground there and if you're talking to people and um, they're inquisitive they want to give it a go but there's all those sort of usual you know they're a little bit anxious they don't really understand it what what do you what what do you generally what's the journey for you and them to to kind of get them on board how would you kind of coach uh, someone that's new to this concept yeah, it's helpful to talk through what some of their point points of pain are and realizing where they're they're struggling, talking about their experiences if they have tried an upwork or a fiverr, if they've had any experiences, if they've heard any horror stories from from other business owners or people that they know and kind of sharing some of the learnings that they've had and kind of talking through that I find is really helpful for them. And then also being able to contrast that with how our approach is in the market and how that approach differs. And you know, one of the things that I think is important, at least for our organization, is that we want to have skin in the game with our, our people, meaning we don't charge any upfront fees. We don't charge any recruiting fees or uh, retainers. So we really are motivated to find the right person the first time because it's going to take us many months to recapture that cost of sourcing and recruiting and onboarding. And so really trying to lower the barrier for somebody to try this and see how it works. Also not locking anybody into these contracts that, that never end. You know, if it doesn't work, mm -hmm. then somebody just walks away. We go month to month. So it's really trying to make it easy for people to engage and to test it and try it. Um, and normally it's just a little bit of a educational process for them to understand, okay, what, how it all works and, and if that makes sense for them or not. And nine times out of 10, when they see the budget, plus they see the quality of the talent and um, it speaks for itself. It's, it's extremely low risk, isn't it? You know, I mean, any hiring of people, you're dealing with people's lives and careers, so you, you can't take it too lightly. But other than that, it's extremely low risk, isn't it, for people? And if people are hiring, you know, if you're not hiring, then it's kind of a hard sell. But if you're actually hiring and expanding your staff, then um, it, it's incredibly low risk and, and worth uh, giving it a go and certainly exploring because it can change the trajectory of your business, can't it? It's pretty powerful. Yeah, and, and it is easy to scale as well. So uh, I think many companies are in the mindset of always having hired locally, that that can be, you know, a hiring mistake can be very, very expensive and very painful and result in lot litigation and, and other headaches. And when you are working with the HR partner, uh, you you let go of that piece and you really remove those barriers. And I think that really allows people to be free to test this and try it. And 
uh, it usually succeeds if they have been properly informed and their mindset is really making them an extension of their onshore team. And, and if they're giving swag to their domestic team, then they should, you know, source something mm. locally in the Philippines or send it to the office in the Philippines and, um, let their remote team enjoy that as well. I mean, th these little things make such a big difference. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's, you know, the, the, the value proposition is you, you can source incredible staff. There's um, a significant saving in terms of total employment costs, but also they, they get you as kind of proxy business partners, helping them right. guide them through this entire journey. So it's, and you know, there's, there's not a lot of lock-ins, there's not a lot of tie-ins, it's, it's pretty low risk. Um, so it's an incredible opportunity, isn't it? And again, just one that I encourage people, if you haven't done so already, just kind of get in touch, pick up the phone and um, talk to someone such as yourself and, um, you know, your peers talking to each other about sort of the needs of a business, staffing needs, solutions. Uh, it's an incredible value proposition. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Um, really good conversation and, and great to touch base with you and, and to hear what it's like uh, in on the ground in LA. Uh, so, of course, I encourage everyone to sort of reach out, have a conversation. It can really transform a business. Um, if they want to get in touch with you or learn more about Doxa, how can they do that? Yeah, email is great. Uh, my email is simply my name. It's Michael dot ross that's r-o-s-s -S, like in sam at doxa d-o-x-a the number seven dot com so michael dot ross at doxa seven dot com and our website is doxa talent dot com and you can also reach out through the website as well happy to happy to take some time to to walk anybody through this and see if this makes sense for them and share some tools and resources that we have. Happy to, happy to make those available. That was Michael Ross. He is the Chief Revenue Officer and co-founder of Doxa Talent. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to send us an email, just email us at ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.